There are three things in movies that make people run screaming. A char baby in a fedora, creepy kids singing an even creepier lullaby, and the words produced by Michael Bay. You won't want to sleep on this episode because we're about to prove to you that the 2010 remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And we are dipping our toes for the first time on this show into the realm of horror. So to help me out a little bit, we have brought in from the Adapted to Scream podcast, Philip, welcome to the show for the first time. How are you doing, man? Jason, thank you for having me. How are you? I am so excited to have you on here. Now, for those of uh, our listeners who haven't listened to the Adapted to Scream podcast yet, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so the Adapted to Scream podcast is a podcast, believe it or not, where we read a book and then we watch the adapted film and then we discuss the differences. I am absolutely fascinated by this. I can just imagine because there's always the, you know, the saying that the 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 book is always better than the movie. I'm just curious here. Have you found a situation where the movie actually exceeds the book yet? Yes, Mrs. Doubtfire. I didn't even know there was a Mrs. Doubtfire book. Yeah, so the book is called Madame Doubtfire. Um it's set in in Leicestershire in England and it's pretty much kind of the same, um, but not so much. And the uh, the Daniel, the character Daniel, the, the the character that Robert Williams played, isn't very nice, really. Um, so, uh, but the but when you watch the film, they, and I think also, I think um, I think because we covered Matilda as well, uh, and I think the film is a bit better than the book, also just because it adds different or adds things that aren't in the book or not. Add, it's like, for instance, in the book, um, the, uh, the brother is a bit of a pain in the bum, but like the brother's not really that much in the film and you don't really need it. So yeah, there's probably Matilda and Mrs. Doubtfire. Hey, first of all, Robin Williams makes everything better, clearly. Um, but I have lost track of the number of books I have read. And then the movie comes out. I'm like, oh, they read the Coles Notes version of the book. Clearly, <laughs> looking at you, the world according to Garp. That one was absolutely just, just so bad. So bad. But when it comes to today, because we are talking about the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. What was it for you like to all of a sudden say, hey, you know what? Nightmare on Elm Street, you got to have a, have a look at this one. Um, well, I think just just so we're clear, uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, a huge fan of Freddy Krueger, a huge, huge fan of all of the films. And uh, when this came out, I was quite excited. And for the last 12 years, I've just seen people moaning about it just constantly. Now, 12 years later, still whinging. Still, oh, it's not, it's not Robert England. Oh, oh, the children, they're rubbish children. Oh, this is, shut up. It's, (laughs) stop it. Okay, behave yourself. Oh, they've turned Freddy into a paedophile. It's like, no, stop whinging, right, and enjoy the film for what it is. Um, And I would like to think that, uh, that, that I haven't waned away from thinking that it's a very good film. (laughs) Well, before we get into the breakdown of this film, it is time to take the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street and trailerize it. Imagine a film so evil 
Its sheer creation is enough to make you tremble in fear. A movie about a homicidal maniac that can kill you in your sleep, made in a way that threatens to put you to sleep. The original nightmare set the rules for slasher flicks. You have sex. You die. You do drugs. You die. You say mean things to the final girl. You die. But this time around, no one has sex. All the drugs are prescription. And everyone genuinely likes Nancy. What's a Freddy to do? Jackie Earl Haley dons the hat and sweater in a nightmare on Elm Street. Rated R. <laughs> what a trailer. I have to go and watch that film now. <laughs> exactly. Not like we haven't already before doing this. Uh, so for those of you who have never seen this, it stars Jackie Earl Haley, not Robert England, Jackie Earl Haley. Most people remember him as Rorschach from, uh, from Watchmen as right, Freddy Krueger. Rooney Mara, Katie Cassidy, uh, a very small appearance by Kellen Lutz, Clancy Brown, and Connie Britton. But I do have to point out that this movie has an almost starred list. Under consideration for Freddy Krueger were Billy Bob Thornton and Steve Buscemi. I cannot, for the life of me, picture Steve Buscemi in this role. Uh, no, not, it's one of those, isn't it? I don't think so either. Um, I would have, uh, I think my pick, uh, even though Jackie O'Haley is very good, um, I would have maybe gone for someone like Kevin Bacon. I'd be curious about a Kevin Bacon because, I mean, I remember, I mean, obviously Kevin Bacon, of course, was in the, the first Friday the 13th movie. Uh, and he was also in Stir of Echo. So, I mean, Kevin Bacon can pretty much, you know, act whatever he wants to. Um, but the fact that they were looking at Billy Bob Thornton and Steve Buscemi as potentially for this. Um, but even Robert Englund had come out and said, like when this they announced what was going on, he's like, Jackie, Jackie Earl Haley? No, that's a very, very good choice. Like he was very positive about uh, the casting of Haley in this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I knew uh, I knew Jackie O'Haley from Watchmen. That's another one of our episodes on Adapted to Screen as well. Um, and uh, I knew him from that and uh, Human Target with uh, is it was it Christopher Vance? No, it was uh, uh, Mark Valley. Uh, and so I was excited to see what he'd do. Um, but I think you know he, he probably had uh, the right age, the right size. And uh, yeah, and, you know, and that kind of gravelly voice that you get from Rorschach as well. So you've kind of got those three things. And I, I guess he may not have been like a massive name, if you know what I mean. Not maybe in 2010, he wasn't, you know, like a Billy Bob Thornton or a Steve Buscemi where that kind of takes away from the film, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We almost also had a couple of cameos from the original film in this one. Um, Heather Langenkamp, um, who, of course, played the original Nancy, uh, turned down a cameo. She was supposed to be the waitress uh, during the initial dream sequence in uh, in the film. Uh, but she Ooh. turned that one down. And John Saxon, who played Lieutenant Thompson from the original, uh, was also offered a cameo. But he apparently had some scheduling issues, which is kind of a shame. Like, it's always nice to see when, you know, people from the original original come into the remake even if it's in a small cameo role you know we saw that in you know movie 
movies, you know, at like Starsky and Hutch even, just to have those mm-hmm. kind of, you know, just that nod to the original, to the ones that came before. And it would have been kind of cool to see that. Um, I don't know if really you could put anyone else in there, but ha- having Heather Langenkamp would have been good. Um, this was directed by Samuel Bear. It is the only film he has ever directed. He's best known as a music video director. And the list of people he's worked with as far as music videos go is huge. You're talking Ozzy Osbourne, Rush, Iron Maiden, Candlebox, Metallica, Garbage. And I have to point this one out because it goes directly into this film. One of the first videos he directed was Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nirvana. So if you're talking about um, guy in a striped sweater shredding, at least in this case, guitar in a high school, um, <laughs> he seemed kind of almost like destined to, to direct this one. It's gone full circle. Mm. But unfortunately, this is the, as we say sometimes, this would be the last film that he would ever direct. And so far it has been. Um, he's still directing music videos and the like, but it, it shocks me that really this is the only film he's directed because it is well done. Uh, I think uh, I think you, you could look at it as maybe he didn't have a very good time on the on the set, and maybe you know if you're doing a three and a half minute music video, it's probably you know a bit more stress free than dealing with as many high-profile actors as they had in the film and uh, the pressures from studios and cutting deadlines and so on and so forth. Maybe it's just a case of, I this ain't for me. Mm-hmm. It's it, it Obviously, it did well enough at the box office. Like, it's, it's not a bad film even that way either. It had a $35 million budget. Uh, domestically, it made $63 million, debuted in number one domestically uh, by a fairly mar- large margin. It knocked out um, How to Train Your Dragon um, out of the number one spot, you know, debuted 32, almost $33 million, uh, on the April 30th, 2010 weekend and made $115 million worldwide. It broke the record for midnight openings for a horror film and actually won the People's Choice Award for Best Horror Film that year. So, I mean, the 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 goods are there, mm-hmm. but the reason why we're talking about this film is because the critics didn't think so. On Metascore, or on Metacritic, it has a 35 Metascore, but where it really falters is at Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 15 one five percent tomatometer with a 43 percent audience score now to put that in comparison to the original nightmare on elm street the og that's got a meta score of 76 a 95 percent tomato meter for the original nightmare on elm streets so you know if you're playing along and doing the math that is an 80 percent swing on the downside for this remake and i just don't see where they come up with like that much of a drop in this like how much do you think that's you know them just just favoring the original Haters are going to hate. I think Jason is really what we're saying here. Um, just before we uh, just before we move back on to, um, or before we carry on, uh, just going back to the cameos. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you said that uh, Heather Langenkamp uh, turned down that one, which is maybe a shame, but maybe it just wasn't commercially viable for her, um, you know, financially. 
Um, I think John Saxon was fairly ill as well around mm. about that time. So maybe it wouldn't have worked for him. I think one that would have been pretty cool uh, would have been Johnny Depp. We would have got If we would have got Johnny Depp in at the funeral scene, just stood in the crowd, uh, that would have been, and I think he'd, He's, he's the kind of person that I'd be like, yeah, I'll turn up for a day and do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stand, stand, stand in a suit. It would have been kind of cool maybe if he was there in the suit or if he was maybe um, the priest overseeing the funeral. That would have been kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I completely yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even a, a Patricia Arquette. I know she was in mm-hmm. the third one in Dream Warriors, That's which correct, yeah. my personal favorite as far as all the Nightmare yes, on Elm Streets. Indeed. Although I do have a soft spot for Freddy versus Jason. That one was a ton of fun. Yeah, I like that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, I think my favourite cameos of all time was the A Team, the A Team movie oh. uh, with uh, Dirk Benedict and um, uh, Dwight Schultz uh, popping up. I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah, you know, sometimes cameos do have a good uh, a good bit of value, even if it's for you know thirty seconds or so. And with any remake, and you know, really with any IP in general, you have to kind of give the fan service. Uh, and having those kind of cameos definitely would have given horror fans uh, that you know that that tip of the hat and saying you know, you know, we thank everyone that kind of came beforehand and we acknowledge that. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. But let's get to the breakdown of this, and we have to start with Freddy Krueger himself. For you, how was Jackie Earl Haley as Freddy Krueger? I think he was very good. I think, um, again, I I said earlier on, you know, there's a lot of people saying, oh, but it's not Robert England. And what you have to remember is this is a remake, okay? So if it was, for instance, we're going to do Nightmare on Elm Street Part 9, then you do want Robert England, don't you? Of course you do, but this is a remake. And their goal was to go down a bit more of a darker route. So if you're going to go down a darker route, you don't want Robert England in there because he's the he's the, he's the the jovial child murderer. You know, he's the one that we like. What we want really is the original Freddy was a paedophile, but they didn't go with the paedophile angle because there was a big Catholic church paedophile thing that blew up just around about when they were filming uh, the original film. So they just stuck with child murderer. 
but you know, those things go hand in hand. So you can have a nice paedophile child murderer who's really creepy, who's just not nice to look at and who sounds horrible. So I think he did a very good job. Um, I think all the scenes, I think all the scenes he were in, he got, he got a lot more screen time than any other Freddy. Well, uh, what I mean is in the films <clears throat> rather than Robert England, of course, but like in, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street part one, two, three, four, five, he's, he's probably got what, four minutes of screen time max. And I think Robert England, uh, sorry, uh, Jackie O'Halley had a lot more lines, a lot more screen time. Um, and I, th- I think he was quite scary. Yeah. I liked him. I thought it was good. I think in the the biggest detriment that you can say about, you know, Freddie in this one, and it's nothing to do with Jackie Earl Haley. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to point to the makeup in this one because I'll, I mean, if you take a look at the, you know, the Robert Englund, um, Freddie makeup design, like all the prosthetics and all that, like that's mm. a very iconic look. And it was, you know, it was horrendous. It's supposed to be horrendous, but it's still in that, you know, one of the big things about Star Trek and their mm-hmm. makeup is that, you know, Michael Westmore, the, uh, the special, uh, the, the makeup effects guy always said like, so long as you can see the eyes, you can, and you can see what the eyes are doing. Um, you can connect with the character and you mm-hmm. really had that with Robert Englund, uh, and that makeup job here. I know they try to do their best to have the look of someone who was a burn victim. And apparently they brought in, um, the guy who would eventually go on to do, um, Two faces makeup in the Dark Knight um, mm-hmm. to to work on that as well, and then of course they had to pull it back a bit because I guess they had you know way too much Char Baby in there, so they were like <laughs> they're like okay, well maybe maybe a little less grotesque kind of thing because you you know he's a scary character, but it just felt like a really bad makeup job, and it was hard to see you know Freddie. It was really hard to yeah. see Freddie in this. No, no, no. Yeah, no. Uh, I do. I. I agree to an extent uh, when when you look because but I think those are the things that you're looking for, isn't it? You're looking, oh, the makeup doesn't look right, so now I don't like it. Not saying that that's what you're saying, but that's what a lot of people say. Oh, well, the makeup's rubbish. Yeah, the makeup might be a bit rubbish. They did try and do the best, I suppose. You know, they've tried to go a bit more, um, uh, what's the word? authentic? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the Freddy scenes, um, I don't think there was a scene in it that was in daylight so it was all very dark anyway you know all of his scenes are in a boiler room or they're in a dark classroom or you know in the attic so it's all very dark so maybe it was a case of "Eh, does it really matter because it's in the dark anyway Mm -hmm. and i think the other um the other thing that that didn't do you know his his freddy very well and again nothing to do with jackie earl haley i think for what he was given he actually did a very very good performance but for me, when it comes to 80s slasher flicks like, the, you know, like Nightmare series, like the Friday the 13th series, part of the fun of those movies is just seeing how creative the kills got to be. Because obviously, if you get to, you know, nine Nightmare on Elm Streets and like 10, you know, Friday the 13th, including Jason in space. But <laughs> but it's always one of those things like how creative are they going to get? And part of the fun about about Freddy in those films was that he almost made a game of it. He almost he 
preyed mm. on the dreams of the people that he was stalking and so was able to turn those dreams into his own nightmarish playground here it you know obviously they were going for a bit of a darker tone because they had done that with remakes of uh the texas chainsaw massacre and with friday the 13th all same production company but it took some of the fun out of the killings in this which i that's something i never thought i'd say in a podcast but here we are today but <laughs> you know like he was a victim of the script i think well i think i think you have to look at it uh this way um in the original nightmare on elm street there was the, we weren't looking for the fun in the kills we were watching the film for what it was and the kills were the kills and if you're talking about boring kills right rod in jail right rod didn't even have a dream well, or we didn't even see Rod's dream. We just saw Rod get hung, right? So we're talking about boring kills. How boring can you get? You know what I mean? You don't even see the guy running for his life or anything. It just all of a sudden, the rope, uh, the, the sheet goes around his neck and he's hung and that's it. Oh, well, never mind. And the same in number two, it wasn't about the, the creator. It wasn't until number three where he had uh, more children to kill because don't forget in the first film as well, there was only like, what, three kills, four kills max? Uh, and then when it comes to number three, because because the characters were more creative, i.e. they had powers, the the kills were a little bit more creative. And then when people are going, that's what we want to see. We want to see the fun, creative stuff. That's when you see the death on the motorbike and the girl getting turned into a cockroach and all of those kind of things. And you're going, oh, I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. Then what you've got is the problem that James Bond had. When What's James Bond going to do next? Invisible car. And everyone goes, what a load of shit. <laughs> and then you have to strip everything back and start your new film. And the only gadget he's got is a radio that fits in his shoe. Uh, you know what I mean? That is, so, so I think what they've done, they've gone, let's, t- let's, let's not go down the route of fun and exciting kills where everyone's desperate to see what he's going to do. Let's make it gritty. Let's make it scary. We, we, we have to appease the, you know, the 40 pluses because it's their, it's their film. Uh, and we've got to attract a younger audience. And does a young and does a younger audience want to see some Freddy Stare burned bloke dancing around the screen, laughing and joking, playing on a Xbox One while he's killing some bloke? No, he doesn't. He do, we want to see a bit of gruesome. And to be honest, I thought the kills were pretty good in this film. In all fairness, I mean, aside from the guy in the prison. Um uh, Jesse, I, I felt his was yeah. kind of like kind of glossed over. I will, I will admit ah, on that. No, you see, no, you see, it's a very, it, it's very interesting. You bring that up um, because I think Freddie has always his kills have always been uh, in the appearance of say suicide as an example. So, like if you look at um, if you look at number three, uh, uh, Dream Warriors, when um, when Kirsten's having her dream and she goes into the bathroom and she turns the tap on and the tap grabs her hands and slashes her wrist. When her mom comes in, she's holding the razor blade to her own wrist. And exactly the same as Dean in the in the beginning. Everyone can see Dean slit his own throat. Everyone can see it, but we know differently. And I think it's uh that's the only one. Uh, Jesse's death just Je- sorry, Jesse's death is the only one that looks like somebody else has done it, except for the bit where Freddie's got him hung upside down and he goes, you know, the body can like live for like 15 minutes. So mm-hmm. now I've got you all, now I've got you all to myself. And that's scary as 
Right. <laughs> it's really creepy and it's really scary. And Freddie has thought about it and he's thought, what what am I going to get off on today? I know. I was going to hang him upside down while, while the last bits of life drop out of him. That one was fascinating. I, I will I will fully admit that one was very fascinating, especially when you realize, and as I'm doing my research, that apparently is true. Like when you die, uh, apparently the brain does live on for like another seven minutes. So huh? okay, knowing that, like that, that is fascinating. It's mm. it's all of a sudden you you have a, more of an appreciation for just the thought that did go into it. Like that that one scene, knowing that that's true, like that that's not just a made up movie fact. That is actual science. Um, that that is scary when you have uh, uh, a villain like Freddy Krueger to to have to deal with. Like the last seven minutes of your brain's functioning life are spent in absolute torment, even though your body is already gone. That's that that is fascinating. Um, let's get to Rooney Mara, who, as yes. Nancy, is very much the final girl in this one. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, the Heather Langenkamp of this film. Um, I found this one very interesting because. And, you know, again, my my memory of horror movies kind of dictates this is that the final girl is also usually the central focus kind of throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Not this one, because for like the first half an hour of the film, it really felt like Chris, Katie Cassidy's mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. was the yep. central focus. And all of a sudden, wait, what, what, what she's dead? Oh, now we got to focus on this girl. Like, like, what's going on? It was, it was almost like a fake out, and it was. It's kind of clever, and I'm sure it played out very clever on paper. But for those who are used to the, you know, we follow the final girl from beginning to end. Um, it's a bit of a left curve there. Well, not really, because that's what happens in the original. It's uh, it's Tina and. Tina's having the dream at the start and then Tina wakes up and she goes to school and she meets Glenn and she meets Nancy and she meets Rod and then uh, they go back to the house and then Tina's in bed with Rod and then she has the dream again and then she's dead. Nancy's very secondary for the first 30 minutes. It's it's interesting because I, clearly it's been a while since I've watched the original. I, again, I will admit, Dream Warriors is is my go to for for Nightmare on Elm Street, and yeah, like it, it's one of the big criticisms of the film is that they didn't really do anything original. They pretty much just copied, you know, not so much as Psycho did when they did that remake with Anne Hesch and Vince Vaughn, mm-hmm. um, but they pretty much you know went beat for beat with the original. So people were citing kind of a lack of creativity. But I do feel bad for Rooney Mara because apparently she hated her time on set so much for this film that she started to question whether she wanted to continue acting after this, which is an absolute shame because I've, I actually really enjoyed her in this one yes so did i and i think that probably um that probably speaks to why the director hasn't done any more films maybe he had a really horrible time as well maybe it was a studio thing uh you know maybe it was other actors possibly i don't know um but i suppose um you know it's not it wasn't a comedy it's not you know there's not really much fun being had is there if you have to act like you're crying or scared or tired all the time so you know Maybe that was the case, but I think just going back to, uh, just going back to what you were saying regarding the, um, you know, doing a remake, like, yes, you have to have certain parts. Obviously, you know, there's a, there's a story to follow. So you've got to kind of follow the story if you're doing a remake. But I think they, they did so many different things that like, there can't really be many complaints. Like for instance, at the start, the Dean dies, but 
you know, there's no Dean in the original. There was no death like that in the original. You know, there's, um, um, I suppose we've, we'll talk later on about the twist in the plot that Freddie didn't actually abuse any of the kids. And when I saw that, I was like, geez, what a twist that is. <laughs> you know what I mean? They killed the wrong guy and then the wrong guy's come back to get his revenge by killing all their kids. So there was lots that they did different, um, especially with the children not knowing each other and just all, there's loads of things they did differently uh, to 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 kind of get away from that. Oh, well, they've just copied the original. They did loads of things different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do have to say, it's a good thing that Rooney Mara did continue acting because she made a phenomenal uh, Elizabeth from the girl in the spider's web speaking about books for me and turned into movies as well uh, yeah we did that 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 was our second episode uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo mm-hmm. versus the girl in the dragon tattoo versus the girl in the dragon tattoo because we watched the original film and then we watched the remake film and we read the book since we're talking about and we we mentioned Katie Cassidy as well um I mean me personally, I'm familiar with Kitty Cassidy from Arrow, and she's great in that. And she's actually really good in this too. And again, it's one of those things where, obviously, it's you know, I've been a while since I watched the original. No, you know, full disclaimer here. But to see that kind of curve, and I, I guess it's one of those things where, you know, if you're if you're familiar with and have recently watched the original, then yeah, this is going to feel almost like a template but if you haven't watched the original in a long time and don't remember much of it it makes for a nice swerve and i felt her character was actually very compassionate the fact that you know um she was there for for dean and you know in the in the diner you know didn't throw her ex-boyfriend out when he came to help like there's 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 a lot of compassion in her for this yeah, I think so too, and uh, it's um, and I think her her Chris to the originals Tina, um, like if you look at their boyfriends, you've got Jesse, who, you just want to punch his face, don't you? He might actually be a decent person, no, but like, but like, I don't think he, his character just come across to me that he was a bit of a knobhead, but like, he didn't really seem, he just didn't seem to care about Chris. If you know what I mean, he, like he's like, oh, I'm here for you, babe. But like, he's not listening to her. He's not trying to help. He's just kind of there. If you know what I mean, he's just there. So Tina can get killed and he can get blamed. Oh, sorry, Chris can get blamed. Where Rod, if you look in the first film, you know, he's a bit of a greaser. He's got his, he's got his uh, switchblade. You know, when they go into the garden, because there's a noise, he jumps out. He has a little fight with Glenn. He pulls a knife on Glenn. And then they're like, oh, let's just go in the house. Tina, your boyfriend has just pulled a knife on someone and you're inviting it in the house with the person who's just pulled a knife on. A bit of conflict going on there. But, um, yeah, so I think, like, the, the Chris and Tina character, their boyfriends were both a bit knobheadery, but they served a purpose because they needed to be blamed for the death. I, I do have to admit that, you know, Speaking of nods of the original, the fact that she was wearing uh, the same number on the shirt that uh, I can't remember whose character it was that got killed kind of in the same way. Johnny Depp. Yeah, exactly. Same number on the shirt. He was wearing the jersey as well. So again, another wonderful nod to the original. But speaking of Jesse, Thomas Decker, um, way moody, way broody, so emo in this one. and it's it's one of those times where, and we we kind of joked about it with you know during the trailer eyes, how um, you know the, the the rules of horror films. And I remember watching the Freddy versus Jason 
DVD and listening to the commentary of of Ronnie Yu and uh, and Robert England talking about it. And Robert England goes on this wonderful tirade. It's like, you do drugs, you die. You have sex, you die. <laughs> and this is kind of the one time where that rule fit in because, no, there was no sex in this film. Um, so kind of much about departure of the, the, the 80s era slasher mm-hmm. films. Uh, no one was mean to the final girl. Um, and, you know, like I said, all the drugs, I mean, um, you know, Quentin had his prescription drugs and yes, he did take adrenaline, but you know, no one's out there snorting cocaine and, and, you know, going off to the woods to have sex. Here's the one guy who was mean to the girl kind of thing in a, in a, in a roundabout kind of way. He's the only real, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better term, he's the only douche in the, in the, in the movie. Um, so you had to think that, yeah, he was going to die. Uh, being from England, like that kind of character, that Jesse character, the way he was, cause he was very, I think we would say he's dismissive of, of people. So he was dismissive of, um, of Nancy at the table. He was kind of like, well, come on, Quinton, are you coming or not? Uh, and then at the funeral, he's like, oh, you know, Chris, just stop crying about your mate because he's a bloke and I don't care. And then when Dante come over, he's like, oh, just shut up, go away. Uh, you know, he was very dismissive and they're the kind of people that I would like to punch very hard uh, in the face. But that, I think that was his only crime particularly. But you, you get those, like for instance, like in your, you know, in your final destinations, there's always that one who's punchable. Maybe should we say, yeah, punchable. Yeah, his character was kind of punchable, but but that's the interesting thing is that amongst all the kids in this, uh, no one was really. I mean, aside from from Jesse being um, kind of jealous of seeing Chris with Dean in the diner, and you know, there was no real major conflict. There was no. Um, you know, jocks versus the stoners in this. There was no, like, you know, pick on the smart girl. Everyone was just kind of there. And I think that kind of took away a little bit from it. Well, yes and no, because I think if you look at, I mean, if you look at all of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, there's never conflict between the kids. There never is, because the conflict is with Freddy. You can't have conflict with Freddy and conflict with your friends, because sooner sooner or later you're going to find out, like, for instance, in this film, uh, you know, Dean's having the nightmares, Dean dies, um, Nancy at the funeral says, I think I know. So she's having the dreams already. Tina then has a dream of Freddie and she confides in Jesse and Jesse confirms that he's having the same dream. So the children confirm within each other within about, what, 20 minutes that they're all having the same dream and that they've got this common enemy. So there's no, number one, there's no time for conflict between themselves. And number two, there's not enough, there's never enough children in the Nightmare on Elm Street films to have conflict with. There's never like, you know, someone getting bullied or because it's not about that. It's about Freddy killing the kids. Maybe that's just those Friday the 13th sensibilities in me. Because, well, my name is Jason, so, you know, it kind of works that way. Um, speaking of the guys in this, uh, Kyle Gallner, who played Quentin, um, who at first I'm like, oh, hey, they're doing the meet cute in the diner kind of thing with him, with him and Nancy. Um, but the funny thing about, about Quentin in this is that from beginning to end, his seems like the character with the most 
progression from uh, maybe just having a nightmare or two and not really thinking much about it to all of a sudden he's jabbing adrenaline in his leg in order to be able to help that. Like there was there was a clear progression for him and it came as a nice, pleasant surprise. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, he was maybe he was the kind of person I thought, oh, I don't mind him dying straight away. But, you know, you can see that he's, uh, well, he was wearing a, a, a in the, in the school just after the funeral, he was wearing a Joy Division shirt, and I thought, you know what, he can't be that bad after all, can he? Uh, but like, if you look at him, he's on the, he's on the swim team. His dad's like the principal. Is his dad is he is he the principal or is he the counselor? I, I think um, it's the counselor because it's Clancy Brown's character that's his dad. The Kurgan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, see, I can't, I couldn't look at him hear his voice and not think Lex Luthor because he has done Lex Luthor's voice in the DC animated films for a oh, long okay. time. So as soon as I hear his voice, I'm like, Oh God, Lex Luthor is here. We have a new villain to deal with. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, so like he's got all that, I mean, like he's, he's clearly bullied at school as well because he's not that big and he looks a bit nerdy and his dad's the counselor and he's on the swim team. And if I was one of the jocks, I'd probably pick on him as well. And, you know, and he likes Nancy and, and he can see that Nancy's a nice person and he's probably too scared to ask her out because he's, because his name's Quentin. I mean, God's sake. Right. But yeah, he, he's got a lot of progression throughout the film. Um, probably out of everyone, I would say so. It, it is interesting because, you know, his, you can see that progression. You can see that, you know, putting the pieces together and really being the motivation. Nancy almost just kind of falls into it. Uh, you know, obviously does some, some, I would say Google searches, but clearly they couldn't use Google as a browser <laughs> that way. I can't even remember what the browser was called, but I'm like, that's like a discount Alta Vista or Netscape <laughs> looking kind of thing. Like searchme.com. Were they on CompuServe? <laughs> like, I'm trying to think about this, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you could see him putting the pieces together. You could see him springing into action. Um, you know, so so as as much as Nancy is very much the final girl, he's kind of like the discount hero in this one. Well, yeah, and, uh, and I think another good thing about this film as well is they they brought other characters in that 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 didn't that they brought other characters into the film that were. Uh, that added to the movie, but didn't actually need to be, sorry, not, not need to be in the film, but they didn't need to be live in the film. So when, the, when they're doing the searching for the kids, you know, they go, well, how many kids has Freddie killed? You know what I mean? Well, he's killed like nine others. And you see the uh, kid on the video um, doing his vlog. And obviously he falls asleep and gets killed by Freddie, which is pretty cool. And then they read all, you know, this girl got killed in a car crash. She fell asleep and died at the wheel. So, it's telling you, Freddy's not just started targeting these kids. He's been doing it for a while and he's been killing and killing and killing and killing and killing. And so that added a little bit, something a little bit different because, you know, in the original, it's just Nancy. Nancy has the dream. Glenn doesn't have a dream. Rod doesn't have a dream. Tina, well, Tina has the dreams at the start, but it's only, it's only the girls, the boys don't. And you only get Tina, Rod and Glenn killed and then the mom. I suppose at the end twice. Um, so there's not many deaths in the original film and at least it gives it an extra little bit of what was Freddie doing before he turned up um, to Chris's, you know, or, or, well, to Dean. He started at Dean, ended up with Chris, then Jesse, and then 
Nancy. So it, I think it was a good addition to the film. It kind of added a bit more gravitas. Speaking of Clancy Brown, though, um, again, aside from hearing the voice on there, um, just his presence, his sheer presence, because here's a guy, you know, we know what they did. We know what they did. Um, and he comes off, he comes across as the kind of character who, you know, knows he has to live with, you know, the, their vigilante justice dealing with, 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 uh, with Freddie. Um, but he feels like the kind of character who, you know, any given day, given the same scenario, he was going to do it again. And I, I kind of like that out of him because it showed, you know, the, the, the determined strength of Quentin's dad, you know, who would do anything for him, you know, and knowing that he will just live with the consequences because his kid is safe. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it's in this film, you get to see Nancy's mom, you get to see uh, Tina's mom, uh, Chrissy's mom, sorry. You get to see, uh, you get to see uh, Quentin's parents, obviously uh, the Kurgan, but um, exactly the same as in the first film, he hasn't got any remorse of what he did. There's no remorse. You know, it's it's not a case of, for instance, uh, it's not a case of Quentin come home and went, oh, a man touched me, and then he went out and burned him alive. All of the kids have gone, he's been cutting me up and he's been touching me, and all the parents have gone, we ain't having this. You know, they've come to... And I think I think that it wasn't even a, a rash decision. I think they probably talked about it for a bit and had a discussion and said, if we're going to do it, we've got to go and do it because I think we all agreed he's done it and we need to keep our mouths shut. And you're right, he'd do it again. If someone messed about with Quinton, he'd probably do it again because if you're a parent, that's what you're going to do. That scene, that that whole, you know, flashback vigilante justice scene, um, that that scene was very, very well done. Um, in that scene, of course, was Connie Britton as well, who uh, who plays uh, Nancy's mom. <sighs> She had the one performance, the one moment in this film where I had to sit there and shake my head going, oh, you, Nancy found the picture and she's putting all the pieces together. <laughs> it's, it felt like the most underreaction of underreactions ever, uh, which is a shame because during the whole vigilante justice scene, you know, she tried to be the voice of reason is like, you know, no, we can't do this, you know. Um, yeah, no, yeah, I get that. And I think like, because, um, when she's got the picture, I think you can see in her eyes, the game's up. She's like, how am I going to get my way out of this? Like, she's going to be asking questions. And the only answer I've got is, you're all abused. And I don't want to say it out loud because it brings it all back to me. And you don't know. And I don't want you to know. And I thought that was done fairly well, you know. I mean, she acted it better than I could have. Um, but that whole bit where, where, uh, Nancy and Quentin discover that something happened and they go and see the Kurgan and the Kurgan tells them, I'd, you know, I'd do it again. Well, he doesn't, but he should. Um, <laughs> but, but, but when, but when Quentin's going, did you even check, you know, did you just take the word of a five-year-old and then just, and then just decide to burn someone to death? Because like, it could have been innocent. And I was like, Ooh, Freddie's innocent. He's innocent all along. How good's that? You know, you know what I mean? It's like, and that, that instead of just being a massive paedophile child killer and then getting killed for it and then coming back for a bit of extra revenge, it makes it, that made more sense that he was innocent. Mm -hmm. And now he's coming back to, 
to get revenge. Uh, and obviously we find out, no, he was just a despicable pedophile child killer, um, which, which made me a bit sad. Because uh, I was like, I was really, I was really going with that angle because that would have made more sense. That that really would have been a fascinating twist because, mm. uh, you know, when it comes to really any kind of movie where there is a clear villain, the best villains, personal opinion, are the ones that, in a, in a weird sense, you kind of feel bad for them. And when that moment happened, when you know, when Quentin's, you know, badgering his dad, and all of a sudden realized, like, wait, you didn't check, you didn't check, you just went and you did it, and oh my mm. god, we we killed, you know, you killed an innocent person in our name, um. It had that moment of bringing almost, you know, uh, somewhat justice to Freddy Krueger, and I think it would have been a, a very interesting take had they left it th- that. Yes, clearly they they you know they discovered the pictures of Nancy, and then all of a sudden like no no he's really that evil kind of thing. But it reminds me a little bit. There was a, there was a moment in it. I don't know if you've ever saw uh, the first season of Jessica Jones, uh, the Marvel series uh, yes. that was on yes. exactly, and uh, yeah. and Kilgrave. There was a moment where oh, he's Kil- badass. He's, in it. Oh, he's David, like, oh, David Tennant is could, could just basically react anything, and I would sign on for it. Have David. you seen? Um, have you seen Bad Samaritan? I have not yet. Oh, right. So tonight, yeah. <laughs> so go tonight, and, I'll be watching Bad Samaritan. Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, go, go and watch David Tennant play Kilgrave in Bad Samaritan. It's awesome. Oh, but there's a moment in Jessica Jones when he's facing down his parents in that little interrogation room that they've got it set up for him. And you realize that the parents were the ones who did this to him. And you're like, I feel bad for Kilgrave. No wonder he mm. like, and it almost justified everything that he had done at that point. And you really, really felt for him and you had that moment when when quentin was pestering his dad where it's like you killed an innocent man because we were kids and we would say anything and 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 all of a sudden puts the guilt on the kids and it becomes the you know the sins of the father are are reaped upon the child and all of a sudden it's this moral dilemma and then oh hey look there's there's polaroids of nancy this is this is not good uh yeah he's got to die <laughs> would you would you have been happier had they not done that switch to say no no he actually did it well i think so yes however uh they wouldn't have been able to end the film so uh, you know what i mean because if the kids and actually i'm quite glad this was before uh the woke movement started because if this was done in say i don't know today then this would be the uproar. The uproar would be, oh, these kids just siding with the paedophiles. So I'm glad this was like 2010 where where we actually go, oh, that's interesting. But I think it would have been hard for the kids to fight Freddy to the death if they felt responsible. Mm-hmm. Because then you then you have to once again kill the kill the innocent victim a second time. It's 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 exactly. Yeah. I think the downside too is that um, there were supposed to be uh, sequels to this. Jackie Earl Haley had apparently signed on for two other films, and Rooney Mara had also been signed on for a sequel as well. But uh, the the public reception of this film caused the production company to sit there and say, "We're not going to make any more horror remakes," and they <sighs> didn't do anything for another three years uh, until they finally came back with The Purge, uh, which, uh, again, phenomenal right. horror movie. But, right. I mean, they had this whole plan of, like, you know, three more, three or three total Nightmare on Elm Street films, 
And it was the, despite the fact that it made money, because on a $35 million budget, if you're bringing in 115 million worldwide, mm-hmm. clearly you're on to something and people are going to go watch the films. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they, they put the, the kibosh on this and they stopped all, all horror remakes. The only, the only IP they really jumped on afterwards, uh, that production company was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, movies with Megan Fox. After, mm-hmm. yeah, but uh, as far as horror movies, it was like The Purge and A Quiet Place, which I think they made the right Excellent. choice for as far as a production company goes. But it would have been curious to see what the story was going to be after this one. Well, you see, I think um, I think maybe at the time, uh, and I suppose you know, if you're going to get all like a bit bent out of shape that a few people said I don't like the film, even though that the box office says differently. Uh, it, I mean, like, especially say like in today's day and age, you could have just done a Nightmare on Elm Street series. That would have worked. Just do like a ten part series, put it on Amazon. Lovely jubbly. Everyone would love it. I'd be curious if someone took a franchise because I know Friday the Thirteenth had a TV series. Mm-hmm. Which sucked because there was Nightmare no Jason Street. in it. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street had a had a TV series as well. It was a bit like Tales from the Dark Side, but Freddy would introduce uh, the stories at the start. Yeah, like almost like a Tales from the Crypt kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. and I think there there would definitely be a market for that on, uh, especially because we're in the middle of the streaming wars. You know, there's enough streaming services that a, a, an IP like this could well, very should easily I, could what well, well, should I really should go and try and get the intellectual property and go right. We're going to do a ten part series. Uh, they're they're forty five minutes long each, and it's going to be, you know, what a film could be. We're going to do it in a series format because you get more kills, you get more story, you get more tense, you get more drama. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I actually would like to see a Death Wish series. Ooh. Always, I've, al- I've always thought a Death Wish series would be really good um, because you could have, uh, you know, you could do it from the start. So, you know, Paul Kersey, or you could start the film, like say six months after the death of his family and he's doing his vigilante business, but then you have the flashbacks to when they were alive and what happened. And you could probably make like a good 20 part series, uh, out of a death wish, uh, thing and probably move it forward as well. Okay. Like a season two, season three. So if Shudder is listening to this, um, you now owe <laughs> Philip a ton of money for coming up with this idea for you. You are welcome. Um, <laughs> right. Um, let's talk about the direction of this one here. Uh, we mentioned mm-hmm. that this was the only film for Samuel Bear. And I think in all, if I'm being completely honest, that's a travesty because from a visual perspective, they picked the right director because there was such an aesthetic to uh, the dream sequences of this and that whole when the kids are in Freddy's world. It it needed the eye of a music video director to give it that surreal kind of feel. And I think Samuel Bear nailed this one. Well, I think uh, straight away you can see what he was trying to do when... Um when Dean goes into the kitchen, when he follows a waitress and goes into the kitchen and it happened a couple of times, you kind of got like um, the dream blur vision. Mm-hmm. It went a bit blurry. So it kind of tells you you're in a dream. And I thought that's pretty cool because um, if you watch any of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, it's very much seen, 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 seen. And they give you that kind of, oh, is he dizzy? Is he asleep? Oh, it's a dream. And um, especially with the... Um, 
with the use of the lighting as well. So uh, it was very much, I thought they used a lot of yellow and orange, a little bit like in um, uh, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane. And then when, I think if you notice, when Dean falls asleep for the second time, uh, when uh, when Chris goes to the toilet, when he falls asleep, for, when he opens his eyes, everything's green and red. Freddie's jumper, green, oh, absolutely, red, green yeah. red, green, red. And you're like, oh, now he's going to get it. Uh, and that happened again um, at some point uh, towards the end of the film. Um, but the the one bit that I loved, that I thought was really, really good, and no one ever mentions it, is uh, the bit when they're at the pharmacy and uh, Rooney Mary, she puts the, um, she burns herself with the, um, with the cigarette lighter. Uh, and then when she goes into the pharmacy, or like she's she's in the dream world, but she's actually in the pharmacy on the floor, and it's cutting to and f- like flashing. You know, she's in the dream world in the boiler room, but actually she's in the aisle of the soup of, of the pharmacy, mm-hmm. and it's show and it's showing you what's going on because you never see that ever. All you ever really see is the child in the dream world, and then they get killed, and then it cuts to the real world and how they've died in the real world, except for maybe in. Um, in uh, Dream Warriors, where you see Philip sleepwalking, but that's the only time you've ever really seen what's going. You know, so what's going on when she's in the ballroom? Where is she? Oh, she's on the floor of the pharmacy, and it's showing you in real time, flicking between it. And I thought that was really good. You also kind of saw that too in Freddy versus Jason, and how you know they were able to get Jason to sleep, and it was Jason who ended up bringing Freddy back from the dream world, so Jason could fight him in you know in outside of the dream state um yeah and then the, you <laughs> it's know it's kind of and then the flicker but yes the flickering in the pharmacy like just the, the, that that jumping back and forth it's almost like you know if you've ever been so tired and in class and doing the whole head bob nodding in and out of sleep you're not quite sure when you're asleep and when you're awake and all of a sudden oh it's the end of the class and i've learned nothing not <laughs> that that ever happened here never Never, not once. But, but, but well, I've done that in meetings before. Um, but um, uh, just talking about the class, uh, the the classroom scene with uh, Chris, mm-hmm. I thought that was fantastic when she fell asleep and everyone just turned to ash and disappeared. And I just thought, wow, that's brilliant. It's much better than it's because there was really good uses of uh, CGI and there was dreadful uses of CGI. Mm-hmm. Um, now that was a really good use. Rather than say, for instance, okay, everyone's going to act like they're just looking forward because we haven't got any money and we can't do anything where they actually used a bit of money and they made it look good. And you're like, oh yeah, now it's good. And it's all dark and it's scary and it's full of water and Freddie's giving it the score. That was really good. Um, the bit that I thought was dreadful and I'd actually marked it down was the wall scene uh, when Nancy's in bed and the wall scene. And I was like, why couldn't you have just copied what they did in the first film and just put a bit of rubber on the wall? Mm-hmm. Why have you got to spend all that money on a terrible CGI? Because that wasn't scary at all. It was like, oh, that's shit. I will admit that, you know, I, I completely agree with you. The uh, the everyone kind of exploding into ashes uh, classroom scene was visually brilliant. Um, but in 2010, that's brilliant then. Now I'm like, oh crap, Thanos snapped. That that that's it. Everyone just turned to dust, and Chris is the yeah, only one left alive. Yeah, yeah, but you see, that's what happened there. You see, uh, they've Thanos that they nicked Thanos. They've nicked the idea from not. They've nicked Thanos's little magic trick from a rubbish film that nobody likes. I wonder if that was actually no, probably not. But <laughs> it, it just makes Nightmare on Elm Street the remake that much more um, 
you know, trend setting. We're going to turn everyone to dust before Thanos does. That that's impressive. And that was yeah, that was great. I mean, uh, I've got. I mean, uh, the the yeah, the notes say like the wall scene. I've I've just put in brackets. Uh, classroom scene, ice. Uh, you know, there was some really good bits. Um, that like people just people moan about this film so much, but there's so many good parts to the film. And um, and, I mean, like especially the ending. I mean, the ending I thought was. Um, well, the have you seen the alternate ending? I have not. <laughs> the alternate ending's badass, right? And it's much better than the original ending. Um, do you want me to spoil it for you? Oh, please do. Okay, cool. So, um, so everything's well. It's the subtle differences. So, um, we're we're at the bit where uh, Freddie's got Nancy on the bed, um, and he turns his face into his normal face rather than the burnt face, if you remember this scene. I, I do. Okay, cool. So then Quentin, Quentin wakes her up with the adrenaline. She, Freddie's in the room. Um, I can't remember exactly what happens, but uh, Nancy picks up a baseball bat and beats the living shit out of Freddie, batters him, uh, and, and I'm talking like home run, bang to the head, bang to the, it just batters him and his feet catch fire on one of the lamps and she just batters him, batters him, batters him. And then she sees all like the little paint cans and just whacks the paint cans on him and he sets up on fire and, uh, and he obviously he's brought back into the real world to burn again. But in that scene, he's his normal body rather than the burnt Freddy. Uh, and then obviously in the end scene, I think you know, he's when he comes back, he's the burnt Freddy, and she chops his hand off and slits his throat. Uh, but the um, but the yeah, the uh, alternate ending's much cooler than the original ending. But the one bit I did like uh, was when the ambulances come. You hear one of the paramedics go, "There's no bodies inside." I did hear that. Yes. Yeah, and I thought, ah, that's their little get out clause. Yep. For 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 the thingy, but also, and I've got to say, for everybody who's moaning about this film, right? Is the ending of this film better than the original? Yes or no? That's a tough one because again, it's been a while since I watched the original. Um, okay, so 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 the original, the original, and I just because uh, it's etched in my memory. Um, Freddie jumps on Nancy's mom. And they all disappear into the bed. And then Freddie pops back up and Nancy turns her back and goes, you're And then Freddie goes, oh no, and then dies. Because Nancy's called him with her back towards him. Then you've got the scene when they leave and as everyone's alive, Tina's alive, uh, Glenn's alive, Rod's alive, and they all get in the car. And then the roof closes on the on the soft top, but it's Freddie's colours. And she's going, what are you doing to Glenn? And Glenn's going, I'm not doing it. And then the car shoots off as if it's Freddie controlling the car. And then a mum's waving at the door and the hand comes through and pulls that mannequin through the door, like the obvious rubber mannequin. And so like, which ending's better? Because actually they did a much better ending. You know what's funny, and I, and then you know hearing hearing that description, I'm like, yeah, no, no, this one was much better. Um, but I wonder how much of this is the the hazy nostalgia factor. 
I've lost track of the number of movies that I remember watching, you know, from that from that time, you know, when, when I'm that age and thinking this is the greatest film ever. And then you watch it again, you know, years down the road when you're an adult going, I was a stupid ass kid. You think that this was <laughs> lots, lots of films oh, that I think that too. Yeah, lots. I'm, I'm looking lots at you, Krull. <laughs> I will never forgive Krull for making me think it was a cool film. Oh. But to be fair, uh, but to be fair, not Renam Street. Um, oh, excuse me, a hiccup there. Um, not Renam Street stands up in lots of the original. It stands up in lots of ways. It it stands up in lots of ways because uh, it's a story about a man who kills you in your dreams, and he only goes to the kids. So the adults are always going to be she's on drugs. That's always going to be the response, and there's nothing you can do about that. And there's certain like the certain bits in the film, like the end of the film, you're like, because I think Wes Craven was very much against uh, leaving the door open. He wanted it. That's it. It's that's the film, and that's it. I don't want any sequels and whatever. But obviously, money. Right. And uh, and uh, that ending was like, it doesn't take away from the film, right? Uh, well, the ending, ending where she gets pulled through the door, it doesn't take away from the film because you're like. It's not in eighty four, isn't it? You know what I mean. What what can you do? And I suppose the question is, what can you do against a man who's in your dreams? How do you kill a man in your dreams? Because it's very difficult. And in the and and I, and I think there's a there was a there was a couple of periods in this film in the remake where they kind of paint themselves into a corner and they're like, God, how do we get out of this? And it's exactly the same as the first film. How do you get out of it? Well, you just turn your back and you call him. And then he cries and disappears. But I think in um, in in uh, in Dream Warriors, it was it was a brilliant kill. You know, they got his bones, they they threw holy water on it, they put the they put the cross on it, and that kills him. You know, the goodness of the holy water and the cross kills the demon, and that was a perfect way of uh, of uh, doing it. I think, um, and I think this was also a very good way of like when they've pulled him into the real world, they beat him to. And they've set him on fire, a bit of justice, so to speak. But obviously, nobody to be found, which always leaves it open. And then the bit with the mirror. I mean, okay, right. It might not be the greatest of CGI, but like it's like three seconds. So stop whinging. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like get over it. It's fine. It's not Terminator Two, right? It's a right. To be fair, right. Jason and the Argonauts stands up, and that was made in 1955, right? That stop motion still stands up today. <laughs> yeah, and that's and it's like 70 years old okay so some cgi stands up and some doesn't but for the for the for the three seconds that that freddie jumps out the mirror and pulls her in it was good i liked it i thought that was a good way of doing it mm-hmm. and i'm wondering too how much of this is you know just a not necessarily a nostalgia factor but you kind of see this with batman as well in that for every iteration of Batman that there is, that is someone's Batman, and they don't want to see anyone else in the bat suit. You know, uh, I know my wife is, you know, very much Michael Keaton is her Batman. Um, she would be correct. She, you know, and I, I did a, uh, an episode recently on Batman Forever, and I said, Well, honey, do you want to join in on this one? She's like, Is it Michael Keaton? No, then no, <laughs> very much so. And, but to the same token as well, you're going to have, you know, people now who, you know, Ben Affleck is their Batman or Christian Bale is their <laughs> Batman. Um, and there are no others. And I'm sure there's somewhere down the road going, no, 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 it's Adam West. Adam West did nothing but. <laughs> but for this, this is the first time someone else puts the fedora and the sweater and the glove on, you know, 
and Robert England, I mean, he's such such a gem. He for, for playing such a monstrous villain, you know, a, a horrible, horrible character that does horrible things. He is such a delight, which is kind of funny and 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 not what you would think. But people just loved him, and I think it's the big thing with that is that when you think about you know the slasher film icons you know there's freddie jason michael myers and and leatherface uh, are and, the, uh, and you've missed one out there but i'll give you a couple of seconds to to remember oh i'm just trying to think now who did i miss pinhead Oh, Pinhead. And you know oh, what's no. funny? I'm glad you brought Pinhead up. Because of of the of those five, of the Mount Rushmore of slash of slasher films, Freddy and Pinhead are the only ones where you really regularly see their face. And Pinhead is very mm-hmm. much, you know, on the same level, I think, as Robert Englund, because as far as Freddy goes, because you see the eyes, because it's that Michael Michael Westmore thing. Leatherface, Jason, and Michael Myers are all hidden behind a mask that obscures, you know, they're they're the faceless horror, whereas Freddy and Pinhead, no, you see them coming, you see them smiling while they're coming at you, um, and you become attached to it because because he was Freddy in so, you know, for so long and in so many films and, and the TV series, Freddy's Nightmares, to see someone else step into that role no matter how much robert england you know approved of the casting no matter how good jackie earl haley did was he ever going to be looked at as anything other than not robert england well it's a very good question um actually uh, a, a fun trivia fact i think robert england and doug bradley who played pinhead uh, and there's another chap i can't remember who's off the top of my head are the only people to play uh, horror characters eight times in a row um, but uh, uh, but just moving on to Pinhead is exactly the same question because Doug Bradley, uh, Doug Bradley did Pinhead from Hellraiser to Hellraiser uh, 8, Hellworld, uh, which also featured uh, Henry Cavill, which is quite interesting. Um, but then they did uh, Hellraiser 9 and Hellraiser 10. Um, but the reason why they did the 9 and the 10, well, they did the 9 because they had to do it to keep the rights to the Hellraiser franchise. And if you've ever, have you ever seen that film, Hellraiser 9, Revelations? I have not. Or Judgment, Revelate, it's, or don't. Okay, because, <laughs> uh, because it will hurt your eyes. Um, I would rather watch like uh, Birdemic before I watch that film again. It's terrible. That, that's a um, strong statement if you're saying I'd rather watch Birdemic than anything. Oh, no. Oh no, 100%. Um, but like it was quite, it, it, it was done because I think it was like they had to make a film within a year. Otherwise the rights went back to Clive Barker. So they just, just churned out some crap. And then um, Hellraiser 10, which I think is called Judgment, it was directed by, uh, I think it's David Tunnicliffe. And David Tunnicliffe is, was the guy who did all the makeup on like one, two, three, four, and five. Um, and I don't know if you've seen that one or not. No, it's been a bit. Okay. It's, it's, well, it's probably, yeah, I think it's been out for about, maybe about four years or so. Uh, but it's actually, it's actually not bad. It's not bad for like a low budget Hellraiser film. Um, but I think there's a new, 
there's a new Hellraiser TV series in the making. Um, I had a little bit of correspondence with Clive Barker not long ago. Um, if you want to move over to, um, after you've listened to this, of course, finish listening, and then go and find Adapted to Screen podcast uh, available on all podcast uh, areas. We've got, uh, we're doing the Hellbound Heart versus Hellraiser. So we're going to obviously be talking about the differences between the book and the film. But our special guest is Simon Bamford, who played Butterball in uh, the Hellraiser 1 and 2. Okay, very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we did try and get Clive Barker on, but um, he sent me a very nice email back going, I'm far too busy to be messing about with the likes of you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, he's doing that. I think there's a a Hellraiser TV show, because he's got the rights back now, you see. Uh, so the so the rights to Hellraiser belong to him now. So I think they're doing a like a TV, uh, a TV thing about Hellraiser, which might be cool. This feels like the Canon Films way of doing things. We're going to make a film, or we lose it. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at Superman. Oh, oh. oh I love Canon Films. Oh, God. <laughs> there, oh. there's so much to unpack from Canon Films. So Canon. Much. Ca- Canon and uh, PM Entertainment. If you can find a PM Entertainment film. Uh, oh my days! I love them. I love them. They're like, you know, they've got like Frank Stallone and Joe Estevez, and then your Gary Daniels films. Oh, they're so good. Before we move on to our MVP, uh, I have to point out that uh, Ad Johnny Roth uh, chimed in on Twitter. Uh, can't say I enjoyed this, except for the different approach on Freddy's character and backstory. The scene of his death is a highlight, and I do agree. That was a very, very cool scene. Uh, there's not much to salvage. The teenage characters, one of the strong elements in the good movies of the franchise, doesn't work here. Do you agree with that? The, 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 uh, no, the, the kids I just didn't work? No, I disagreed on Twitter and I disagree now. Um, he's corrected everything he said other than that bit. Um, no, because everyone, everyone, as I said, there's like, there's like three camps. There's the, this isn't my Freddy. Freddy's not a pedophile. The acting's rubbish. And it's like, those are the three kind of camps. So you'll have, this isn't my Freddy, but the acting's okay and the film's all right. Jackie O'Halley's great, but everything's rubbish. So it's just like, no, the acting was good, right? The, and I said that they're, uh, you know, the child, like, like, like we talked about the characters. Actually, they've got quite a lot of depth to them, in all fairness. Uh, and I think they've got a lot more depth than the characters in the original. I mean, uh, you know, Glenn's kind of just like, oh, you know, whatever. I'm a jock. I'm going to just sit on my waterbed and watch my TV on my lap. Uh, you know, Rod's like, I'm a greaser with a big knife and I'm a tough guy. And then Nancy's just like, daddy, every five seconds. So, you know, you haven't really got much to salvage. from. Oh, also she goes full home alone in that film. I've always wondered about that in the original where she goes, oh, dad, wake me up in 20 minutes. And then she like sets up a whole house of horrors and has time to fall asleep. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, no, so I actually think the characters in this film are quite good. Um, that at least they invoke a response from me, i.e. I want to punch him in the face the second I saw him. So, you know. The- <laughs> I, I do have to say too as well, um, and, and again, we kind of joked about it way early on in the show, is that in the credits, we're right at the top, produced by Michael Bay. And I wonder how much of a blowback that is considering Michael Bay's body of work. Well, it's one of those because I think I think he kind of 
around about this time, kind of like people were kind of pushing back on his films, and I don't know why, but like he didn't direct it. I don't think he really produced it. It was just his company that did, uh, you know, do the I suppose do the funding and get it made. And I don't really see the problem, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it's, it's like you know, I don't see the problem. What's your problem? Right? Are you watching Nightmare on Elm Street? To like, are you watching it to like, for instance, like? from my point of view when they said they're doing a remake I'm like oh this is going to be like oh, I'm, I'm interested I'm interested in seeing it oh well it's not gonna be, it, it, it won't be Robert England but it was Jackie O'Haley okay that's fair enough let's see what they do and what they did was very good mm-hmm. I can't like, I, I haven't got any I haven't got any complaints about it the acting acting's acting I'm not a very good actor so I couldn't have done any better so I'm not going to I'm not going to comment on that um on the on, on the bits that they added, they added some really good elements, and I thought that's really good. Rather than it just be, you know, a, you know, a like for like, so to speak. You know, they added some really good elements. Um, the the kills. I mean, God, Dean's kill at the at, at the start. That neck slash slash with the knife. I was like, geez, I'm in for a good time here. You know, what I mean, there was some good kills. Freddie was very good. He was menacing. He was scary. He was vengeful. And I think that's the I think that's the key. He was very much I'm gonna you're gonna pay, you're gonna pay for grassing me up, and it was just uh, you know the parents being worried about the, the that that whole story on about the about the parents like making them not believe that it happened was really good, and I just thought it was and it and it touched on parts that the original didn't touch on because they probably couldn't at the time, but they can now. And I can't say anything wrong with the film. I think, you know, to kind of sum it up, you know, as as a horror film, there's no question, it's a good horror film. Even as a remake slash homage to the original, it's a very good remake and improves on the original. Um, but I think it's one of those things where it's not necessarily the original that hurts this one. It's the eight or nine other films in the series that hurts it. Not because they were any good really but because they changed the tonality of the series and made it camp and made it about as you said the james bondness of it how much bigger can you go the answer is yes um and then all of a sudden it becomes well you know you've got you know, giant snake head Freddy eating kids and whatnot. It's, it's, it just becomes so outlandish that all, all of a sudden, and that's the last memory that you have of the series, going back to something like this where it's dark and gritty and a bit more on the realistic side, you go, I guess that kind of determines what your nightmare on Elm Street was. Oh, 100%. I think it all started with, you're on the prime time, bitch. As soon as, <laughs> as, as, soon as he dropped that line, that was it then. Because I mean, like, in especially in Dream Warriors, he toyed with them a lot more. Um, I'm always a bit sad that they didn't put up much of a fight, but that's beside the point. But then after that, he's like, like I mean, the uh, the uh, Breckenmeyer scene where he's got like the Super Nintendo joypad, or, or the, I've got the power glove, <laughs> and he's and he's doing, and, it, and you're like, this is just nonsense. And what what I'm watching is ridiculous nonsense. But that's what people wanted. People wanted bigger, more, louder, and that's what they got. And then they're what. But this is the whole point, though. You see. 
for the remake, for the people who, who, who are invested in the original, I mean, I'm in my early 40s, so I would say, you know, I'm invested in the original. I've seen it hundreds of times. So I've got a vested interest in seeing what happens. People who may be, let's say, in their 20s who have seen the original and then watched the remake, you haven't got an opinion in my opinion. In my opinion, you have no opinion. You either like it or you don't. You can't go, oh, well, this is not right, and this is not right, and oh, this is not my Freddy, and Freddy's not a paedophile. Shut up. Either watch the film, and don't go, like you were talking earlier on about uh, Rotten Tomato scores. That's just for haters. It really is. It's the people who enjoy films will enjoy the film. And if you don't, then, you know, don't go on the internet. Stop being a loser. <laughs> okay, Vela, but it's come time. So who is... <laughs> Your MVP of the 2010 remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay, um, I would say, I would say Jackie O'Haley. I think I think he's in the film a lot more than what he probably should have been. Uh, but I thought he was creepy. I thought he was scary. Uh, I thought he was, you know, methodical. Uh, his kills were good. Uh, yeah, so I want to go with Jackie O'Haley. I'll, I'll admit I considered him. Um, I also considered Clancy Brown because, again, that voice is just you know, iconic. But I have to go with someone who I had not really been as familiar with their work going into this as I as I am now. Uh, but Kyle Gallner, who played uh, Quentin, there was just something about his character that, mm-hmm. again, the, the earnestness of his wanting to help Nancy, the earnestness of him wanting to figure out and, and actively do something about about Freddy and about trying to discover why this was going on the, the 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 whole scene that reaction to his dad when when he finally hears the truth of what they did and and you know questioning him not just saying you know not just accepting what his dad said but questioning him like really questioning mm-hmm. if yeah. they were in the right like there was just so much to him and you know in 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 reading up on on kind of the backstory of this film the fact that apparently when he um audition for the role like he was the first person they cast they gave him the role on the spot apparently his audition oh, was that good like there was like no no we need you in the film and thank god they did because you know as, and as much as I, I i liked rooney mara in this as well i found that his earnestness towards her was was it's it was more than a meet cute it was more than you know just along for the ride here you had a duo that was working well together and mm-hmm. i liked his journey through the film more and that's a total credit to kyle gallner uh felt thank you so much for this thank you for joining into the show uh where can listeners hear the adapted to screen podcast Oh, well, well, thank you for that kind plug. Uh, there's just just a quick couple of things before we go, Jason. Uh, there's one thing that we like to do on our podcast is uh, to select a soundtrack. Ooh. So, so normally what we do, we watch a film and then we, then we say, right, so what would the ideal soundtrack be if there is a possibility of a good soundtrack? Um, so... Uh, and I've just sprung it on you, so you can have a little think. Uh, but the one thing I did like uh, in the film was the Everly Brothers' uh, Dream. And they played that a couple of times. Uh, you know, like the, the, they played it when she was in the pharmacy and they played it on the end credits. But I thought, especially, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of American Wealth in London. And uh, all of the all of the songs in the film had Moon in the title. Mm-hmm. And so I thought they probably missed out a little bit on 
having songs in the film with Dream in the title. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because normally when I think of music and Nightmare on Elm Street, the very first thing that I hear is Dawkins singing Dream Warriors. And, oh, and if you told me it. in the 80s, if you told me in the 80s that I was going to like a Dawkins song in a horror film <laughs> over an Alice Cooper song in a horror film, because, of course, he did, uh, he's back, The Man Behind the Mask for one of the Friday the 13th movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dawkins has the superior horror film song from the 80s. I will fully fully admit that but as you're talking about that it's, it's gonna be a weird weird cut um but if you remember three men and a baby with tom mm-hmm. Selleck and steve gutenberg yeah. there's this scene where they're singing a lullaby to the baby to try to get to sleep it's like, good night sweetheart well it's time to oh, yeah. but if you had that as almost like a more of a like a like an older 40 style recording with a yeah. record yeah. scratch it's, you know yeah, playing over the credits yeah. exactly mm-hmm. that yeah. might yeah, be yeah. the creepiest version of that song that could possibly be in this but i'd be all for it well uh, i uh, i actually wrote down a few suggestions uh of my own uh that involved the word dream in the title uh things like um i don't know some of these are, are british so you might not have heard of them potentially uh but shattered dreams by johnny h jazz okay uh, Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. Oh, I love that song. I absolutely um, love that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, River of Dreams by Billy Joel. Uh, Daydream Believer by The Monkeys. Because obviously the micro nap was introduced into that film because you've been awake so long, you're having micro naps. Daydream Believer. And, you know, and, and again, do it in a 40s style Slow it down, scratch the record. Mm. They sound creepy as anything. Um, uh, These Dreams by Heart, that could have been the end credit song. Um, Or um, Last Night I Dreamt Somebody Loved Me by The Smiths. Oh, that would have been a good one too. I think so too, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then we also do um, uh, a bit of a cast change. So is there anybody in the cast that you would change? Oh, that is a, that is a very, very good question. Because I, again, there's there's a lot that 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 I did like out of this as far as the cast that was there. But as far as changing anyone, especially considering it's, you know it's 2010, 12 years old, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, the only person I could possibly change, and it's nothing against Rooney Mara. It is absolutely nothing against Rooney Mara, and the two are are. are it's funny because you know, as soon as I was doing the search, I'm like Rooney Mara, wasn't she the one that did like that one underworld movie that wasn't Kate Beckinsale? But no, that was Rona Mitra, and I could uh, easily see Rona Mitra in the Rooney Mara role. Um, that's interesting. I think you would get like a very similar performance, um, but I think with Rona Mitra, you'd get a bit more of a um, a more badassness to her, but I don't know if that would work as well as uh, for Nancy than what Rooney Mara did. Well, maybe and maybe not. Um, I think uh, I think there's only one person I can think of off the top of my head that was arraigned in about that time, uh, which was Jennifer Lawrence. I think she'd just done, was it uh, uh, The Last House on the Left or... The house at the, the cabin in the end of the woods. I think she's just done something that's similar 
mm-hmm. film to that kind of, I can't remember what film it was, but I think she did that maybe in the early, like around about 2010. So she might have been good for the role um, and probably a bit of a better actress maybe, but that's just me. Um, but no, other than that, I don't think I would have changed anyone particularly. I enjoyed everyone's performances and I thought they were all believable in their roles. Actually, you know what? I might, I might actually change Connie Britton. Too late. No, 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 <laughs> no, too late. I, I think late. I would change Connie Britton <laughs> and only because um, there's just that one scene. Um, and it's a, it's a bit of a weird choice. And for the life of me, for some reason, I cannot remember the actress's name, but she plays Charlotte in Sex in the City. And I just think that, that she um, actually looked you, a bit more like she could have been... Kirsten. Kirsten? Uh, yes. Kirsten, yes, not, 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 not Kirsten Dunst, Kirsten... Davis. Yeah, Kristen Davis. Um, Kristen Davis. She it. looks much more like she could have been Rooney Mara's mom. And, yes. she, and she is a phenomenal that's a actress. That's a, that's a good call. That's mm-hmm. a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. But, but, I just hijacked the show there. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm all for it and I love it. But where can our listeners hear the Adapted to Screen okay. podcast? So, yeah, so we're available on Spotify. We're available on Apple. Basically, anywhere, uh, good pods, um, anywhere where you... Uh, Google Pods, anywhere you you've got a Google, uh, sorry, anywhere you've got a podcast, I'm sure you can find us if you just type in "adapted to screen podcast." You will you will find us there. We um we as I said, we read a book and we watch a film, and we discuss the differences. We've had some really good uh, special guests. So we've had uh, Scott Caporo on our uh, Mrs. Date for episode. Scott Caporo was in the film. Um, he played, uh, do you remember when uh, Robin Williams goes and gets his makeup done by his brother? I do. The other chap, so not the brother, but Jack, uh, the, the boyfriend of his brother. Um, he, he's, uh, he's our guest on that. So he talks about everything behind the scenes of the film and stuff like that. Uh, we've had, uh, Gareth Berliner, who's, um, a soap star in the UK. He did our Watchmen episode. We've had a, a children's author, Ben Davis on. Uh, we also had uh, Eddie Brimson on talking about everything uh, running with the firm and ID, which is a football hooligan film. Um, he himself uh, has written books and made films about football hooliganism. Uh, so we, yeah, we've had some we've had some very good guests on, and we've got Simon Bamford who played Butterbean, uh, Butterball on Hellraiser coming up. Excellent. Well, Philip, you have an open invitation. Anytime there's a movie that comes up, you're like, you know what? It's really not that bad. Oh, hey, wait a second. I should call Jay and hop on the show. But absolutely. Open Ooh, invitation. <laughs> Excellent. And, anytime. And, uh, and, uh, well, and, and if you're happy to read a book and watch a film, we'll definitely have you on our show as well. Oh, absolutely. And trust me, there's a few books I could sit there and go, I would love to actually uh, dissect. There's actually one I'm sitting on my bookshelf called The Feed, uh, and I know they did a movie for that that's on Prime Video right now, and it's on my list of things to read. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, Now, to you, our listeners, you guys know the deal. If there is a film that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that there's no way in heck that we're going to be able to find anything good to say about it, hit me up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast, and we will watch it, we will dissect it, and we will find the good things to say because we're looking for those A grades in those B movies. Philip, once again, thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.